And just want to take a second and thank Policy Genius. They're supporting today's episode of Success Story. I know we all have kids. We all have families we want to take care of. And I personally check something off major on my to-do list, life insurance. It's a tough topic. It's really hard to think about, but it's so important. And the hard part was sorting through all the options. Luckily, I found Policy Genius. Policy Genius is an online insurance marketplace that makes getting life insurance surprisingly easy. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just $292 per year for a million dollars of coverage. Some options offer same-day approval and avoid unnecessary medical exams. Now, knowing my family's protected brings me incredible peace of mind. Don't put off this important decision. Check life insurance off your to-do list in no time with Policy Genius. Head to policygenius.com or click the link in the description to get your free life insurance quotes and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. Welcome to Success Story, the most useful podcast in the world. I'm your host, Scott D. Clary. The Success Story podcast is part of the HubSpot Podcast Network. The HubSpot Podcast Network is the audio destination for business professionals who seek the best education and inspiration on how to grow a business. HubSpot Podcast Network hosts act as on-demand mentors to entrepreneurs, startups, and scale-ups through practical tips and inspirational stories. Listen, learn, and grow with the HubSpot Podcast Network at HubSpot.com slash podcast network. My guest today is Brady Pyle. Brady is the Deputy Chief Human Capital Officer for NASA. He is responsible for supporting the Chief Human Capital Officer and leading human resources for all of NASA. For this role, he works at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, Texas. Since March of 2018, he has led executive HR directors for NASA's 10 field centers across the country in development, execution, and integration of HR services, programs, processes, and policies. He has an incredible amount of experience recruiting, hiring for some of the most difficult roles in the world, including astronauts. So he is originally from Corpus Christi, Texas. He studied HR management at Texas A&M, joined NASA in 1995. He has progressively held more leadership roles. He spent his entire career, well, almost, almost entire career with NASA. He leads a team of 100 civil servants and contractors. He he has developed more than 3,000 civil servants, including astronauts who support the International Space Station and other human space flight programs. He has received numerous awards for his work, leadership recommendations, and recognition for his work. What do we speak about? Well, we speak about NASA. We speak about how NASA has grown throughout the years, the culture of NASA, leadership style within NASA, it's coming from a more military-focused organization to a more innovative-focused organization. We speak about just some general HR best practices that he's learned through his career, how he hires for the, one of the most difficult jobs in the world. And then, of course, we speak about the future of space, the competition between SpaceX, Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic, NASA, and some of the things that he's dealing with in the day to day as space moves forward and is more privatized. So without further ado, this is Brady Pyle, Deputy Chief Human Capital Officer for NASA. Thank you, Scott. I'm glad to be here with you today. Uh, my career started, um, actually started thinking about career uh, when I was in high school and I, I wanted to go work in the, in the government. And so I, my dad and grandfather were both uh, civil servants and um, really wanted to follow uh, their careers, although they were, they were more on the blue collar side. I, I always wanted to be uh, working in a suit and in the air condition. 
And so when I went to college, I, I went in the public administration route at Texas A&M, and they had uh, the co-op program. So I was able to, to work uh, a couple of jobs with the Department of Health and Human Services, and that was my first exposure to the HR field. Uh, and then I knew I wanted to pursue that field. I got a graduate degree in HR management from Texas A&M, became a graduate co-op, reached out to different uh, government organizations, including NASA, and landed a co-op opportunity with NASA and have been there the last uh, 25 plus years and been a great experience of, of growth and, and opportunity. Um, I was able to actually spend uh, some time outside the HR field. I spent nine months as a frontline leader in engineering back in 2013. Uh, also spent a year in D.C. working at our headquarters office and uh, also at the World Bank and the International Finance Corporation as well. So had a variety of experiences over my career. The last several years I've been uh, in the HR executive ranks at NASA and uh, working on shifting our model. We've gone from a model where for 60 years NASA was very decentralized. So HR um, worked autonomously at each of our field locations and field centers, and now we're we're really pulling that function together. So that's been an exciting time to be in the middle of that and and that transition here at NASA. That's incredible. Um, so I guess just you know walk me through some of the nuances of of how NASA operates, of how NASA manages and leads. And because I don't think people really understand, they know NASA from what they see in perhaps movies, or if maybe you're a little bit more educated, you understand some of the programs they're working on. But I think that some of the leadership nuances, uh, even in the preamble, we're talking about coming from the background that it came from and, and how it's evolved. So walk me through that. Yeah, that's been an interesting evolution, uh, even even over my career at NASA to watch how uh, leadership style has evolved. So if you if you think of NASA when it started in the 1960s, um, a lot of the talent and leadership came from the military. So it was a leadership style that was very hierarchical, uh, kind of came from the Department of Defense, um, and the leadership style kind of evolved and the culture kind of evolved around that. And then if, if you've seen the Apollo 13 movie, you know um, uh, the famous line, failure is not an option. You know, we needed to bring the crew home, and that was a great success story for NASA. Uh, they built, Tom Hanks built a great movie around that. Uh, if any of your listeners haven't seen that, I would, I would definitely encourage that. But uh, the failure is not an option uh, was, was critical to getting the crew home. But then that culture really started permeating parts of NASA that it didn't need to. Um, and what we were seeing is that was impeding uh, a culture of innovation. We weren't really being innovative uh, like we needed to in, in a lot of areas. And so several years ago, we initiated um, uh, a recognition for teams that, that we said lean forward and fail smart. Um, and we used specific criteria around that award. So we wanted to recognize those that were, were daring to try new things. Uh, they, were, they were exhibiting risk-taking behavior to, to achieve new innovations. Um, we wanted to recognize perseverance, you know, uh, determination to succeed, kind of that never give up attitude. Um, we wanted to recognize learning. Uh, how are they applying lessons learned 
after failing to achieve desired results. And then really wanted to emphasize collaboration. You know, how are you sharing knowledge with others? Um, how are you openly collaborating and, and networking to, to gain perspectives um, that were different from yours and different experiences? And so uh, that has really helped us in, in areas where we need to be innovative to, to really start shifting that culture and, and become more uh, innovative and risk-taking um, where it makes sense. Um, I would say NASA has also kind of evolved um, its overall strategy. If you, if you look at how we're engaging with the emerging space industry, um, for a long time, NASA would develop uh, requirements, detailed requirements, and then contractors and, and industry partners would come in and work to those requirements. Uh, what we did more recently with um, our uncrewed missions to the space station, these are missions that take supplies and food up and down to the space station, is uh, we just set a detailed, uh, here are the outcomes we need. Here's what we need to have happen. And then the emerging space industry could figure out how to make those things happen. We weren't, we were detailing what we needed, not how to make it work. And so bringing to bear innovation from industry um, uh, into the mix. And so we really need that kind of innovation and that kind of effort to uh, put the first woman uh, back on the, on the moon and the first person of color on the moon as well. And, and go on to Mars. That's the exciting things that we're about now. The NASA has branded its, its moon program Artemis. Uh, Artemis was the Greek sister of Apollo. Uh, the Apollo program was our moon program in the 60s. And we're being very intentional about we want to put a woman uh, on the moon and the first person of color on the moon as well. So, so NASA has obviously evolved. Um, it's gone from uh, military, more regimented, to innovation, to bringing in, bringing in uh, other agencies, other industry to help fulfill. And right now, is it a mix of of both? Is it a mix of other industry plus NASA as well, which seems to also be championing some of their own initiatives? So, because that was something that I I had screwed up when we were first talking, I was confused because I thought that. Okay, so NASA was doing all these initiatives, but realistically, even before Virgin Galactic, mm -hmm. even before SpaceX or Blue Origin, you were already working with industry. So where, where, who did you work with in the past 30 years? And, and what does NASA do now versus what do they quote unquote outsource, which is probably not the right way to say it, but <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a great point, Scott. Yeah, you, even if you go back to the, the, the moon program, um, industry partnerships have always been part of the fabric of NASA. So uh, the the big aerospace companies like like Boeing, Lockheed Martin, um, you know, before them, um, uh, Rockwell. Uh, we had the United Space Alliance when the space shuttle was was flying, which was uh, kind of a merger of of Lockheed and Boeing. Um, we have always had partnerships with industry. Uh, what we're seeing here more recently is kind of a new way of engaging with industry and allowing for, for more of their innovation and, and more of their ideas and trying to, um, trying to invest in and, and stimulate that industry where we can. So we, we still have traditional partnerships. So the International Space Station, uh, we've got a, 
strong contract with Boeing. Uh, they've got the biggest contract there. We've got a strong contract with Lockheed Martin to build the Orion spacecraft, which is the spacecraft that's supposed to help get us to the to the moon and onto Mars. Um, and then we've, we've got partnerships with, with teams building our rocket as well. Um, and then we have these other unique partnerships on um, getting, like I mentioned, supplies up and down to space station and then now crewed missions. You saw um, not too long ago, SpaceX um, has flown crews uh, up and down to space station. Uh, successfully, and then Boeing is is supposed to test similar technology um, soon and, and get crews flying up and down the space station as well. So that was the first time um, in since the shuttle stopped flying that we were able to fly crew from American soil. And so, yeah, having those partnerships is critical to to NASA's uh, current success and future success. Amazing. Um, okay, so I want to I want to look at some of the the lessons that are probably more in your purview. I actually have I have one more question on some of on one point that you mentioned. So the future of of NASA is to put the first woman and first person of color mm -hmm. on the moon and go on to Mars, and that's incredible. What what would be the the actual game plan for that? Would that be something that would involve industry partners, or would that be an, a, a NASA initiative internal? And how would that actually manifest? Would that go to RFP? And just think from the business-minded folks, yep. how this process would most likely come about. And I know it's probably not 100% set in stone, but I'm just curious how something like that would happen. Yeah, again, it's a mix. So, um, you know, okay. build, building the rocket that is needed to go to the moon, um, yep. the rocket and the technology to go to the moon is different than, than the technology and rocket that's needed to get to the space station. So space station flies in low Earth orbit you know, to get to the moon, you got to have a lot more uh, propulsion capability um, and and a bigger rocket, you know, more more powerful. Okay, rocket. gotcha. Um, so you've got that, and then you've got the spacecraft being built. And and as I've mentioned, both of those cases, we've got um, uh, industry partners involved. Uh, and so, um, you know, that's that's huge for us. Um, and and then you also have in the emerging space industry, you have you know, Elon Musk talking about um, SpaceX has plans to to try to do similar thing, things to try to get to Mars yeah. and and explore and and they're laying the groundwork for some of that as well. And we need, you know, we need them to succeed because if if we have um, uh, you know good ideas and and good partnerships and then also good competition among industry, we can drive costs down. Um, everyone wins. Yeah, and every everyone wins, and and ultimately we explore deeper um, than we can go if if it's just NASA funded activity. Amazing. Okay, so you were speaking about how the culture of NASA has evolved, um, and now very much focused on a culture of innovation, entrepreneurship. I feel like every organization would love to have that, but it's hard to quantify. It's hard to measure. So, what are some of the strategies that you've worked on to build this culture and also NASA as a whole over the years so that you can guarantee you have a culture of innovation, entrepreneurship, and you can measure how uh, that, what's like the metric to actually see that succeed. Yeah. And, and I know from a, uh, from a workforce perspective, um, we have some strategies and I'll talk a little bit about that. We also have strategies for, for innovation on, on the technical side where we are, um, 
we are working solutions with uh, and seeking ideas from from outside the walls of NASA. So we put out there different different challenges to our technical problems and trying to bring innovation um, into NASA where it may not succeed organizationally. And then if if we pivot and talk about within the organization, um, we like to say that uh, building a culture of innovation is not rocket science. Um, we actually leverage our annual employee engagement survey. It's called the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. Uh, and we work closely with the Partnership for Public Service. They're a uh, independent nonprofit organization that actually puts out the best places to work in government. Um, I'm proud to say NASA has been uh, named the best large agency in the federal government the last nine years. Uh, but they have different indices that they look at that are based on this, this engagement survey. And one of them is the innovation index. Um, and it's, it's basically three questions. Uh, and it asks employees, are you consistently looking for ways to better perform your job? Do you feel encouraged to come up with new and better ways of doing things? And are creativity and innovation rewarded? So if you think about those three elements, it kind of simplifies and helps focus uh, leaders on what they need to be doing. You know, are we are we encouraging you know new ideas and and better ways of doing things? Uh, are we giving employees the the space to to better perform their job, look for new ideas, and then are we rewarding and recognizing that creativity and innovation when it happens? So it comes down to those leadership behavior. So we're consistently monitoring how we're doing against that um, with our engagement survey. And we, we probe down into different elements of the organization, see where pockets are doing really well in that regard and see where pockets of the organization uh, that might need help. And, and we go in and, and consult with those leaders uh, that may not uh, be showing up the way we, we want them to, to drive that culture of innovation. So that's, that's how you're actually getting that constant feedback loop from the employees as, as you, as you try and foster this culture of innovation, entrepreneurship. Um, now getting the feedback loop is great, but how do you actually, cause a lot of these, a lot of these models for them to be successful are, are something that has to come from leadership and leaders within NASA. So how do you actually ensure that this is a model that leaders can help support? and help drive because if obviously your leaders are failing then i'm sure that the, the 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 team and the and the results from this innovation index would also not be so great so is there is there leadership lessons that you try and um you try and uh look for or instill in the actual leadership team leads managers directors vps yeah, that's a that's a great point scott and i i briefly mentioned earlier that um in 2013 i spent nine months as a frontline leader in our engineering organization. And part of that is we, we recognize the key role that, that frontline leaders play to, to engagement and to our culture. And so walking in those shoes, I was able to kind of see um, some of the challenges that are faced by our frontline leaders and, and the role that they play. Um, if I go back to kind of the, the innovation index that the Partnership for Public Services built, um, they've done a bunch of studies that show what are the different engagement questions that really influence that innovation index. And then you're getting into even more specific leadership behavior that we can, we can look at, we can measure, we can um, frame some of our leadership development activities around. 
and there are, there are six six of those things. So, you know, one is that that employees are rewarded for providing high quality products and services. So, do our recognition programs, um, you know, really get at that? Uh, one is I'm given an opportunity to improve my skills in the organization. So, we want leaders to to continually um, give opportunities. Uh, both in the sphere of influence they have, but also we want a model um, that allows for growth and, and skill development uh, beyond your current role or, or current team. Um, how satisfied are you with involvement and in decisions that affect your work is a third element. Uh, so really having a leadership style that's inclusive and that seeks that input uh, from employees is really important to us. Um, and similarly. Fourth element is employees have a feeling of, of personal empowerment with respect to work processes. We want employees to, to figure out new and better ways of doing things and be able to implement those, you know, not have organizational barriers uh, that prevent that. Um, and then uh, fifth element is supervisor provides an opportunity to, for employees to demonstrate their leadership skills. Uh, it's really important for uh, for us to build this culture of innovation to also expect um, people to be able to have influence in that. And when I think of this particular element, I think of leadership as influence. You know, not everyone wants a supervisory or management position, but everyone wants a say in decisions, a say in where the organization is going. So uh, supervisors fostering that and, and giving employees that ability. And then ultimately, uh, another key element to this is that um, employees have a high level of respect for senior leaders. So senior leaders being visible, um, uh, walking the talk of what they expect from other leaders and from the organization, living out the core values uh, is all very important. So from a from an HR standpoint, um, you know, we're kind of watching for that. We're giving feedback. We're um, we see that senior leaders may not be aligned with um, uh, either what's what's being expected in the organization or, um, you know, modeling of core values. And so uh, having those conversations and, and that accountability is important as well. So this is how you've built your culture. This is this mm -hmm. this feedback loop between the leadership, basically these points for leadership and these points for employees. This is how you've actually built the actual culture that has uh, like some of the some of the items you mentioned before, where you were one of the highest ranked places to work in in federal government, but also in in the United States, if I'm not mistaken. The, this is the culture that sort of fostered that. Um, these yeah. this is or go ahead, sorry. Yeah, no, I, you're right on, Scott. And if and if you look at the the things that we've talked about here, the, these are not things that are unique to NASA, unique to our workforce. I mean, these are very um, translatable, uh, actionable things that, that really any organization can do to build, build that culture of engagement, build that culture of innovation. Um, you know, no matter what industry you're in or what organization you're in, uh, the kinds of things that, that we've done, again, are not, not unique to us or, or the fact that we've got rocket scientists. <laughs> so, so, okay. So next, next, so we figured out culture. Um, I want to understand and unpack, uh, how you hire. So how you hire employees, how you, uh, what are, what are some of the, the high level learnings, um, for hiring into, 
because let's just assume, so let's, let's assume that this is the model organization. So if we have a model organization, we have a model culture, how do you hire people into this organization so that you can obviously maintain this culture? Is it looking for the right people or is it, is it something that you do that where you source people from? What are some lessons for people that are looking to hire the right people that, uh, that you'd recommend? I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, HubSpot. HubSpot is the CRM platform that is easy to implement and is even easier to get your team to adopt. And ask anybody that's implemented new technology in a company, the biggest issue is not finding it or buying it. It's getting your team and your company to actually use it and adopt it. And when it's a piece like a CRM, one of the most critical pieces of your business infrastructure and your tech stack, if people don't adopt it and use it, that means you're getting incomplete data, you're getting missing data, you're getting garbage data, it could impact quite literally everybody in your company, as well as it could negatively impact your customers and your revenue. So how does HubSpot solve for this with their CRM platform? There's two components that they focus on that allow for organizational wide adoption. This is the contact timeline, as well as the mobile app. So the contact timeline gives a historical context for all of the data that is associated with a certain contact in the CRM. That means that anybody across the organization can see see all the actions and all the interactions that have taken place against that particular contact. You can also use that timeline to make calls to these contacts, enroll them in sequences, put them into marketing or sales campaigns, schedule a meeting, open tickets. The historical timeline makes it easy to take action as well as to track the action that's been taken against all of your contacts. And it's not a pain to enter the information, which means that it doesn't take somebody a long time to put in great data, which can again, positively impact your whole company. The second piece is the access from anywhere, meaning if I have a phone and I'm on the road, the world's opening up a little bit more now, people are traveling again, I can use the HubSpot app to access my CRM anywhere, on the go, on the fly, doesn't matter. So I have complete access to the CRM, I have access to my spreadsheets, my calendars, my notebooks, all of my contacts. I can send messages across my team with the HubSpot keyboard. I can access my contacts, call them through the HubSpot app. I can take quick notes, I can take contact information, I can all log it into my HubSpot app so that I can pull it up later on my desktop when I'm back at home. It's simple, it's intuitive, intuitive. It's meant to make it easy, frictionless, so that your team sees the value in properly using the CRM to the fullest of its capabilities and gives them the tools and the tech to allow them to do it without spending too much time and causing them more headache. The best thing about HubSpot is that it can be set up for any size of business and it will scale with you. If you're just starting out, you can take advantage of certain features and then as you scale your business, you'll notice that HubSpot will support all almost anything you need as you grow. So if you do want to learn how to scale your business without scaling complexity, go to HubSpot.com. I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Quantum Metric. So what Quantum Metric is going to do is it's going to allow you to develop a single source of customer-centric truth that can help you understand how to position your products, how to sell to your customers. Because anyone who's a digital leader who wants to understand your customers better, it should be 100% of you. You should want to understand the customer experience when they hit your website. And then you also want to understand not just your customers, but who else in the world is having similar experiences and how can you use that information to make informed decisions about how your business moves forward. We are gearing up for an unprecedented 2021 
e-commerce season. E-commerce sales are expected to exceed 2020 benchmarks, even though COVID is lightening up. Consumer behavior has changed forever. And with Quantum Metric, you can prepare yourself to capture every single customer revenue opportunity. So their unique approach to the digital experience that the customer has while engaging with your brand helps top retailers, e-commerce outlets quickly identify and prioritize large and small revenue opportunities, and they keep customers coming back. So everything from page hits, mouse movements, scrolling, typing, out-of-the-box interactions that you couldn't even think of, various events, API calls, literally everything, they quantify that data and they present it to you so that you can use that data to make informed decisions about how customers interact with your brand online. So if you want to reduce customer friction, if you want to increase conversions, drive more revenue, optimize user experience, personalize the shopping experience for all of your customers, go visit quantummetric.com slash pod offer. That's quantummetric.com slash pod offer and go see if you qualify for the 12 days of insights offer using the code success. The 12 days of insight offer gives you 12 days of access to the quantum metric platform with a bespoke insight report that will help you identify where customers are struggling and engaging with your online experience and your digital product. Some restrictions apply, but for the majority of people, go to quantummetric.com slash pod offer, enter the code success, and you will be able to receive their 12 days of insights offer. Get ready to understand your customers with intimate detail that can optimize experience and revenue and give your customers an overall much more pleasant experience when they hit your site. All right, let's get back to the show. Yeah, so so for us, um, you know, technical education uh, and experience kind of kind of gets you uh, to the door. Um, but but really, we're we're looking for kind of people who fit the culture and and align to the the core values that NASA has. So, core values of teamwork, excellence, integrity, inclusion. So the kinds of things we look for is, is what is the track record uh, for excellent results? Um, how do they work in teams? What has been their experience uh, being part of a team? Uh, and certainly what we like to hear too is are they passionate about the mission? Um, you know, usually people come to NASA because they want to explore. They wanna, uh, they're excited about the, the kinds of things that we're up to. And so we're we're looking for people who align with and and care about and are excited about the mission. Now the other thing from a from a workforce standpoint, uh, like at the Johnson Space Center in Houston, for example, uh, we have about three thousand NASA positions, uh, government positions. There are another about twelve thousand uh, people who are on on contract. So that's um, people who work for Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin. Other companies, there's there's probably about 50 companies represented on site here in Houston. So a lot of times when we're looking for experienced hires, uh, that is our our talent pool source in a lot of cases. So we've seen their track record of results. We uh, we've watched them in in their roles as uh, as contractors and uh, saw how they lead, um, how they work. And from a from an HR perspective, you can't really get much better than that because past performance is always the best predictor for future performance. So if you've seen them operate, um, that's way more than than a traditional interview can do for you. 
So we, we tend to blend um, about half of our hires come uh, through that uh, pool and then about half come directly from colleges and universities. And we have a real strong kind of student program as well um, that, that kind of facilitates uh, us seeing people in action before we, uh, before we bring them on board, even as students. And I was going to, so I'm also curious, um, and, and, uh, and I, and I have to go into this. How do you hire astronauts? <laughs> because I think that, so all these lessons are incredible, but I think that, uh, the fact that somebody is going to be potentially going to space adds a, a an extra level of complexity into the hiring process. So I'm very curious how you, how you do that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, as, as you might expect, I mean, we've got a very detailed lengthy selection process. Um, so we've got, you know, traditional interviews that, that you do for most jobs. Um, we involve other current crew members, current astronauts, because they're looking from the perspective of, can I fly with this person? You know, if I'm, if I'm going to a deep space mission, uh, either to moon or to Mars, you're talking months, potentially years at a time in small confined spaces. So, um, you know, am I able to, to fly with this person is a big thing they're looking at. There's a lot of psychological assessments. There's a lot of medical screening. Uh, it's a very, very rigorous process that, that folks go through um, to ultimately get into the astronaut program. And, <coughs> excuse me, excuse me, how many people actually uh, end up applying for this? Like, what's the selection process like? If anybody wanted to be an astronaut as a kid, I'm sure they were, uh, I'm sure, I'm sure they were wondering what their chances were like, um, and I'm sure they're not so great because I, uh, you know, how many people are actually selected? Uh, it doesn't seem to be a lot. So, yeah, your your odds the last couple of cycles are are probably less than one in a thousand of people who apply. So, um, okay. in 2017, we we actually had a record number of applicants. We had 18,000 people. Uh, who applied to be an astronaut. And a lot of that was we had a, a strong um, recruitment blitz. We had a great social media campaign and uh, marketing campaign and really drove those numbers up. Ultimately, out of the 18,000 who applied, 13 were selected. And so, yeah, you're less than one in a thousand in, in that. We, we are going through a process right now. Uh, we actually um, had an application window uh, earlier this year. Uh, we had 12,000 applicants this year and we're anticipating hiring 10 to 12 people. Now, the difference between 2017 and 2021 is in 2017, we only required a bachelor uh, level degree. 2021, we came back and said, you know, if we look at the past few astronaut classes, uh, it's hard. It's hard to even um, get past the initial screening without at least a master's degree. So that was the the entry level requirement was changed in 2021 to a master's degree. So that impacted a little bit of our our applicant numbers, but really didn't impact that that front level assessment. Generally speaking, you, um, you're more competitive even with the PhD level. Um, really, uh, wow. either science or, or engineering degree. Uh, there are folks with masters, depending on the the kind of astronaut you are as well. Because we have we hire uh, 
uh, pilots from the military. Um, and those were, were even more critical back in the shuttle days when you actually were flying the shuttle. Um, the capsule-like uh, program is a little bit less, um, you know, like flying the jets that they fly in the military. So a little bit different And the PhDs would be to provide, uh, so if these would be, so, so just help me understand yeah. why a, a PhD would be required. Yeah, so, so today we're flying uh, crew members up and down to space station. Most of what they're doing is uh, scientific research and experiments. So they're conducting experiments aboard the space station. Um, they've got detailed requirements about those of uh, looking at various things, looking at medical um, technology, looking at um, agricultural technology, because, you know, you've got to be able to grow your own uh, food in space, especially if you're going to go to Mars and, and deeper space missions. So, um, you know, a lot of the folks, when you, when you get into this, this kind of competition, uh, what what tends to set people apart is is they've got a little bit more. Either that's a little bit more education or a little bit more uh, experience. And what would disqualify somebody from being an astronaut besides the fact that there's already a ton of competition and there's interviews, psychological screening? Um, there's probably, uh, I'm assuming some sort of physical requirements as well. Yeah. So are there other things that may disqualify uh, an astronaut from, from actually being hired? Yeah, we, you know, we, we tend to ask, um, uh, the kind of questions and assess their experience on exploration. So if you, if you think of people who, uh, are big mountain climbers or scuba divers, or they've spent um, you know, time and kind of deep sea exploration. Uh, there, there's a lot of corollary there. Um, so some, some folks get eliminated because they don't have that kind of, that kind of experience in their background. Um, but probably the most surprising thing I, I think that, that knocks some people out is, man, our, our culture and core value is around teamwork and every team member is important. So, um, you know, you've got your traditional interview process, you've got, like I said, the medical screenings and other things. So um, as part of the process, we, we ask the, the receptionists, we ask the nurses, you know, how, how were the candidates? How did they interact with you? And we have eliminated some folks in the process who treated receptionists and nurses differently than they did other folks, not realizing, mm -hmm. I think, that they... Hey, these folks are part of the process too. They're part of the NASA team, and so um, uh, that's that's really important to us that we get astronauts who appreciate uh, all team members and all contributions. And so that's another element that we look for as well. And for somebody who is still holding on to the dream that they can be an astronaut, or perhaps there's a there's a kid listening to this podcast somewhere. What does make the perfect astronaut? Yeah, I think um, you know. I think I think a lot of folks want to be an astronaut for different reasons. I mean, some some folks dream of being one uh, since they were a kid. You know, whether they love space or they saw one on TV or looked up to astronauts. Um, I think others kind of kind of bump into that along the way in their career path. Um, they see. Uh, whether they're kind of a test pilot in the military, they're um, scientists or engineers that have this this inner desire to explore. 
uh, or to be part of a team or, or really want to be um, a leader in some way. Um, there's just there have been a lot of different reasons that have led people um, to this path. And there are a lot of people who dream of, of being an astronaut. You, you talk to a lot and hear a lot of the current astronauts. Many of them had to apply three and four times. So they had to to kind of be persistent. Uh, they would get feedback through the interview process of other skills they need to develop, experiences they need to have to make themselves more competitive and, you know, hung in there and, and eventually, uh, you know, made it through the process. But it's, it is extremely, it's a grind. extremely competitive and it's a grind. <laughs> That's a good way to put it. It's a grind. Amazing. Okay. Um, I want to, I want to, uh, pick your brain about some of, of the, uh, I guess, relevant topical uh, space companies or stories that are in the news and, and how they interact with NASA. But I also want to give you a chance to um, to show off a little bit because you had dropped some really impressive numbers on uh, NASA employee tenure and workforce numbers um, that I think we spoke, okay, so we've spoken about culture. We've spoken about how you hire and onboard some leadership lessons. We spoke about astronauts. That was fun. But I think that all of this, I want to just tie it up with and, and put a bow on it. Some of the some of the numbers that you experienced in terms of uh, your employee uh, attrition rate, you, mm -hmm. how many employees stay with the company, the length of tenure. These are all very, um, in my opinion, uh, impressive stats because I feel like I'll let you talk about these numbers, but I feel like that's not the norm in many companies. I feel like that people last a lot. <laughs> people do not last half as long in many companies and the attrition or the churn of employees is much higher or attrition rather. So walk me through some of these numbers and I want to, uh, I want to congratulate you because they're very impressive. Yeah. And Scott, I, I would, I would say they're, um, you know, people come to NASA for the mission and then stay for, for both the mission and the people they work with. You know, again, this teamwork culture, you develop these, these relationships. And, um, and I, I think there's a, there's a shadow side to our numbers too, that I'll talk about. Um, okay. so yeah, the, the average NASA employee is, is about 48 years old. Uh, they've got about 18 years of experience, uh, at NASA. Um, we run about 4% attrition per year, which is extremely low. So our workforce changes very slowly over time. One of the disadvantages of the NASA workforce is that less than 5% is under, under the age of 30. So what, what you're seeing right now kind of in the space industry is that um, a lot of uh, college grads, um, younger talent is going to the emerging space industry. Um, you know, the SpaceX, Blue Origin, you know, those those companies. Um, and then, you know, we're, we're hopeful that over time uh, we're going to see a revolving door um, and kind of what uh, what we like to call porous borders between NASA and, and the space industry. But, yeah, our workforce is, is very stable. Um, uh, but the challenge that provides for us is that um, I've heard it said that that really to change culture, uh, true organization culture change, you can rule of thumb, you can take about half of your average employee tenure. And that's how long it will take to change the culture. Well, if that's true 
for NASA, that's a nine year, um, you know, nine years to, to turn the ship, which in our case is then influenced by different administrations as well. So a lot of times NASA pivots with changes in presidential administration. One of the the nice things about our current approach is that um, the previous administration had had come up with the the Artemis idea and putting a first woman uh, on the moon, and the new administration came in and and embraced that and then added to it and said, hey, we should also put a person of color on the moon as well. So they've kind of enhanced that that program. But what we've seen in past administrations is that we've done complete pivots or right turns, which then makes it makes it hard Difficult. for the culture and the organization, given the um, you know the tenure and the stability of the workforce. So there's some positives in that, and that yeah, people come, they want to stay, they feel passionate. Um, other numbers that we have show our scientists and engineers typically stay uh, five to seven years past their retirement eligibility. So, you know, people. Um, they're passionate about they're the work. Passionate it's a, good, about it's the a work. good spot to work. Yeah. Passionate about the work, passionate about the team and the relationships that, you know, if you think of and your average tenure is 18 years, you, you got a lot of longstanding relationships built, you know, in this team. Amazing. Okay. So I want to unpack um, the relationship between NASA and some of the emerging uh, space companies. So you touched on this before. Um, you did say that you work in tandem with a lot of these or organizations. But walk me through uh, some of that relationship, um, how NASA initiatives interweave with some of the initiatives of some of these, you know, SpaceX, Blue Origin, and so on and so forth. Yeah, and if I, if I go back to uh, some of the starting point, I alluded to that earlier about how we changed our, our approach to, to contracts. But, um, you know, a lot of this started when we were looking to get um, uncrewed missions for, for food and supply up and down to the space station. So we awarded contracts to SpaceX, to Boeing, uh, to Blue Origin um, for that. So they, they were all developing... Um, spacecraft and, and methods to get those supplies up and down to space station. Um, now we're going through a, a contract process for the next lunar lander, which is which is key to this Artemis mission. You know, if we're going to the moon, you got to have a, a a lander that will get to um, uh, to the surface of the moon. And so we we selected SpaceX for that contract. Um, Blue Origin actually protested that that award, and um, it was interesting because there was a big headline here a few weeks back that, that Jeff Bezos said, "Hey, I'll pay the the two billion dollars in in fees on the contract," um, which which is really challenging for NASA because we have to abide by federal government acquisition regulations, and so we're trying to work through that. I mean, how do you know? How, how do we handle this? This is kind of unprecedented in government contracting to have that level of uh, uh, investment offer being paid by your, yeah. by your offer. <laughs> so, um, you know, as, as I mentioned, Scott, we're, you know, we're seeing a lot of young talent, you know, move into these organizations. They're getting really good hands-on experience. And, and so we want uh, from a workforce and talent strategy, we, we really want um, folks to be flowing in and out from these organizations, 
come in and influence the the NASA culture, keep us innovative, you know, keep pushing us. And then we want folks as they get a little more experience at NASA to be able to go to the SpaceX's and Blue Origins and kind of lend experience in, in that direction as well. So um, we're actually working with Congress now on some legislative proposals that'll that would better enable that kind of strategy, you know, the exchange of talent. Because um, there are there are rules around, you know, particularly when you get into a certain level at NASA and you can influence contract decisions, you know, uh, you have to be real careful kind of how people move and uh, for future uh, contract competitions and that sort of thing. And and do you find that there is like a, like a rocket scientist talent war where you may lose access to talent because of emerging space organizations, private space organizations? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, we're, we're not seeing it that way and we're not really thinking of it that way uh, right now. We haven't, we haven't seen those kinds of impacts uh, to this point, but part of NASA's mandate is to help, uh, help with STEM education and provide STEM talent for America. So from our perspective, we're excited that, that, Hey, the, the billionaires are, are joining us and in, in providing kind of inspiration to America's youth. Um, you know, we have with 4% attrition, relatively stable budgets that leaves you with very little hiring capability. So we need these to these companies to attract the students from colleges and universities uh, if, if they're going to get started in uh, the aerospace industry. Um, you know, we just based on NASA's capability, we couldn't attract enough talent uh, that's coming out of the colleges and universities. So it's it's awesome to see they have unique, exciting opportunities, can can lend their energy and, and innovation to these companies and and again hopefully take us further in, in space than, than NASA could go on its own. Amazing. Um I wanted to um just ask uh i always tee these up with a few rapid like uh career questions rapid mm -hmm. fire career questions to pull out some insight from you before you pivot was there any other closing points that you want to touch on for nasa hr culture leadership anything there and then also how do people get in contact with you is there a social website what's the best spot yeah so um you know i i, I think for for nasa part of Part of what I've seen is um, uh, our success uh, comes from continually trying to learn, and so we are we are out there a lot, you know, benchmarking with other companies, um, involved in in conferences and other things to try to try to stay in in touch with uh, with what's going on from a leadership perspective. Uh, certainly, a hot topic right now for for us and a lot of a lot of organizations is the future of work. Um, you know, we have had, uh, NASA's had for the last 60 years, a very um, facilities in-person based organization. And, and we've had to pivot like a lot of companies have the last year and a half to, to more of this kind of teamwork. You know, how do you do the screen to screen relationships? And um, so we're really, really working on that. Um, so yeah, I, if, if listeners have ideas, want to engage, want to have conversations, um, I am out there on LinkedIn, uh, uh, also on, 
on Twitter as well. I've got a, a blog on the side that's called out of this world leadership. That's um, <laughs> clever. <laughs> uh, one of the things that I, keeps me going as far as continuing to read and to learn about leadership and, and different aspects of it. So uh, glad to engage with, with folks and, and have conversations that will help us all improve. Amazing. Okay, perfect. Okay, so let's go into some rapid fire. Yep. And you don't feel don't feel rushed, but I just say it because uh, there's just there's a few they're very very short questions. Um, so, the biggest challenge you've had in your career, um, what was it, and how did you overcome it? Uh, biggest challenge was we we had an issue um, at the Johnson Space Center in Houston um, that involved kind of how we hired students. the uh, The government had changed its rules on the co-op program and uh, we had some big challenges and, and differences in, in philosophy and approach between the local approach we were taking in Houston and, and what our folks at, at headquarters thought that we should be doing. Um, as a leader, I had to personally engage um, in those relationships, build trust with the, um, with the team from headquarters to show um, we we were taking some risks with the uh, with the approach we were taking and why we were doing that, um, how it was going to help uh, the agency mission, um, but then really showing that showing that trust and building the trust with uh, with the team from headquarters um, was big. So it, th that's what I found mostly in my career is relationships and and working with people is is key to success and. Um, keeping those relationships strong. Uh, I love the advice of you, you never know who you're going to work for. Uh, I've certainly observed that in my career and, and experienced it as well. So as long as you keep those relationships strong and uh, uh, with, with a variety of people, you'll be in a good spot. Good advice. Um, if you had to choose one person, I know there's probably been many, but one person who's been very impactful in your uh, life, it could have been a mentor, it could have been a family member, a peer, whatever. Um, who was that person and what did they teach you? Yeah, so actually um, kind of early in my, my leadership career, um, let's see, that would have been uh, probably about 17 years ago. Uh, I was making the transition into kind of a leadership role. This was the 2004 timeframe. We were um, we were going into that uh, was right after the Columbia accident, shuttle Columbia accident in 2003, and we were doing a big hiring surge in engineering to bring more engineers uh, back in to get the shuttle to return to flight. Um, at the time, I had kids that were four and two at home. And so my pattern was um, I would go to work, I would come home, have dinner with the kids, help put the kids to sleep, and then I would go back in and do more work. And I had a mentor at the time. His name was Joe Tanner. He was actually in the astronaut program. Um, and then I knew him from church as well. And, and Joe told me, he said, you know, he goes, uh, in your life stage and where you are, he goes, it's easy to focus on you know, your role at work and then your role as a father, he goes, but you really need to focus on your role as a husband as well. And so that led me to have conversations with my wife and make, make adjustments. And, and I think, I mean, I've just observed, um, uh, what I, what I often tell leaders is NASA will take as much as you're willing to give it. 
So you've got to set those boundaries and, and figure out, um, you know, your own work-life fit. And I think without Joe's advice, Joe Tanner's advice there, um, I don't know, I could have been making some, some bad choices that could have, could have hindered my marriage and coming up on uh 25th anniversary year this January and, um, congratulations yeah, so very, it worked out <laughs> very very excited about that but that was pivotal advice from someone who had been there you know and that's that's where i encourage leaders get a mentor you know get someone uh you know who can help you you know navigate some of the life challenges very good um if you had a a book or podcast um that's impacted you uh, you'd recommend somebody go check out what would it be so I'm I'm a big fan of uh, uh, John Maxwell, and I know early in my leadership career, his his book, The 360 Degree Leader, was really pivotal for me. So, um, making the transition to leadership, I focused a lot on my relationship with my boss, my relationship with my team, and what what he pointed out in the book is the criticality of your relationship with your peers. After reading that, I began to be more intentional about going to lunch with peers, even though um, we didn't necessarily uh, have to work together uh, on different things. Um, but building those relationships were were critical because then I moved into different leadership roles um, where where I had to work work with them from a little different position. Um, and I, I think that was that was a pivotal book. Uh, he's got other books out there that are leadership gold and uh which summarize a lot of his his lessons but i like his stuff because it's uh simple uh easy easy to follow and easy to implement amazing um if you could tell your 20 year old self one thing what would it be um keep at it i, I think as a 20 year old i was uh very focused um uh one of the things that that I think I did well as a 20 year old is, is, uh, participate in the co-op program, you know, got out there and, and saw some things from a work perspective and began to see what I liked and what I didn't like, um, about career opportunities, kinds of organization, kinds of leaders to work for. Um, and I, I think I would say, uh, definitely stay at it. Um, I would say be patient. So I didn't uh, actually didn't get married till I was close to 25. Um, and that was always a, a desire of mine. But, um, uh, you know, be, being patient and staying the course um, would have been important advice as well. Um, and if you could, by the way, 20, 25 is still young. It's like, it's not, right, right. I'm not married yet. And I'm older than that. Okay. <laughs> Yes. Um, yeah, fair, fair. I, I, I get it. I get the, I get the lesson. <laughs> um, and then uh, lastly, uh, last question, what does success mean to you? Yeah, I think, I think success is, um, for, for me, my, uh, my personal core values are uh, <clears throat> integrity, excellence, and improvement. And so success is about uh, living a life of integrity. Um, you know, do, doing my best and, and whatever I'm involved in and then getting better over time. So success is, you know, living a life that's aligned with those values. Um, 
it's also, um, I think for me with, you know, with, with kid, with three kids, it's, um, you know, those, those who are closest to me, um, you know, know me best and, and respect me most. Um, so I don't want, uh, you know, a lot of times uh, work, work commitments, um, can stack up and, and don't want to lose sight of the, the value that I have on family who will, who will be there long after career. Yeah, no, very good. Very good. Okay. That was, that's it, man. That's the last question. That was uh that was perfect. All right. You awesome. you killed it. That I appreciate you you helping out and setting up some of those uh, some of those points because we just got through a lot of a lot of stuff. Normally there's more uh there's more um frivolous not it's all good, but frivolous conversation, right? Like just like stuff that's not as meaningful. But you it was really good. I'm I'm really happy with that. Thank you very much. I know a lot of entrepreneurs listen to this show and NetSuite has been a huge supporter for entrepreneurs, for business owners, because there's one thing that we all know. Business is about making money and it's about your bottom line. And the less you spend on the nuts and bolts of running your business, the more profits you keep. But these days, everything is costing more. Supplies, people, shipping. It squeezes your margins. And I've been there juggling multiple systems for finance, inventory, you name it, each with its own costs and its own set of headaches. That's why I made the switch to NetSuite by Oracle. It's changed our company. Think about it. NetSuite is one of the top financial systems out there. It puts your whole business on one platform, accounting, finance, the works, one data source for everyone. There's no more mismatched info. And because it's in the cloud, it slashes your IT costs. No more servers, no more updates. Just access NetSuite from anywhere. With one integrated suite, your overhead drops big time. And here's the real win. Efficiency. Everything's connected in NetSuite. Costs are ridiculous lately. Find a proven way to reduce your expenses and get better performance out of your team. It's a no-brainer, and that's what NetSuite offers. Over 37,000 companies have figured this out already. You have to join them. Right now, through to April 15th, NetSuite's got an incredible, flexible financing plan. Check it out and see the savings yourself at netsuite.com slash scottclary. That's netsuite.com slash scottclary. I don't know about you, but the idea of being harassed, scammed, or even worse, all because somebody found my personal information online, that's terrifying. Our political opinions, our addresses, even stuff about our families, it's out there for anyone to grab. And did you know that data brokers are allowed to sell information on over 98% of Americans? It's scary stuff. That's why I've partnered with Delete Me. I personally use Delete Me. They're a big friend of the podcast because I put myself out there online. So safety is a huge concern. It's really scary how easy it is to find someone's details and information. But Delete Me creates a layer of protection that we all need. You tell Delete Me what you want gone and they make it disappear from those sketchy data broker sites. And Delete Me doesn't stop. They constantly monitor the web to keep your information off those lists. It's like having a privacy watchdog that never sleeps. You need to take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me. They're giving a special discount for all Success Story podcast listeners. Get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash success and use promo code success at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash success and enter code success at checkout. J-O-I-N-D-E-L-E-T-E-M-E dot com slash success. Hey everyone, I just want to take a second and thank the sponsor of today's episode, Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. 
Now, I don't have a lot of liquor sponsors on this show. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is actually one of my favorites. I've drank it for a few years now, and this is why we actually decided to work together. Heaven Hill Distillery, family-owned since 1935, is a great entrepreneur story, too. So there's five brothers. They filled their first whiskey barrels back in 1935, and their legacy still lives on today. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond is aged over seven years. That's three more than required by the Bottled and Bond Act of 1897. This means the best quality, the best purity, and the best consistency. This is not just average bourbon. It's the winner of the double gold medals at multiple 2023 World Spirits competitions, and they've won the very prestigious Triple Still Award. It's a very big deal in the liquor and bourbon world. Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond boasts an exceptionally smooth oak flavor, while its aroma offers a sweet blend of caramel and smooth vanilla. If you love bourbon, you need to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely, drink wisely. Think back to your last few days in the office. Did any of them leave you feeling really accomplished? Not the kind of day where you're running around like crazy, but where you've made real progress on something that matters. Because being busy doesn't always mean being productive. And I bet you we've all been there. And maybe it's time to rethink what it means to get things done. Today's episode is sponsored by Belay. And what they help you do is, instead of getting sucked into emails and to-do lists, they help you delegate tasks and focus on big goals. They can connect you with top-notch US-based talent who are ready to take on those time-consuming tasks that bog you down. Let's be real. There are way more important things you could be doing than bookkeeping or wrangling a packed inbox. They have virtual assistants to handle all of those pesky administrative tasks or accounting professionals to take care of all your financials. But here's the best part. You don't have to waste weeks searching for the right person. Belay's personalized matching service works quickly, sometimes matching you with the right talent to take stuff off your plate in under a week. Are you ready to try a different way of working? Check out Belay's list of the top 25 things you can delegate to a virtual assistant. It might just change your business and your life. Text success, that's S-U-C-C-E-S-S, to 55123 to get the list and to start transforming your to-do list with Belay. Thank you so much, Indeed, for sponsoring Success Story. For all business leaders out there, Indeed is a lifesaver. See, we're always driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You're going to ditch the busy work and you're going to use Indeed for scheduling, screening, messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Clary. Just go to Indeed.com slash Clary right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Clary. Terms and conditions apply. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. 